So, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark 10, 13 through 16. All righty. So, starting with verse 13, it says, And they were bringing children to him that might touch him, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You can take a read. Thank you, Joy. Well, good morning, Central. My name is John Andrew Clayton. I'm the student pastor here at Central. And as you can imagine, after watching all of this, these fantastic students lead us up to this point, I firmly believe, and I do not think I will be convinced, that I have the greatest job that there is to have. Uh, Yeah. My hope this morning, that as we dig into this passage, and as we continue to walk in worship, and close out our time of worship today, again, being led by students, that we would see the value that Jesus places on students' roles, children's roles in the kingdom of God, and that we would foster that with them here at Central, as we always have, and we'd look to do so even more in the future. So pray with me as we get into the message this morning. Father, we do thank you again. And Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be led by students. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have worked in tremendous ways in each of their lives for a long time. And Father, we thank you that you have confirmed within them again and again how much you love them and that you have a plan for their lives. And Father, we pray that we, this morning, as the rest of the congregation at Central Church, would get on board with that plan. That, Father, we would recognize what it is that you mean to do with children, specifically those that are here at Central. Father, we would understand the mighty ways that you desire to use them here. And, Father, to use them in their schools, to use them in their workplaces. Father, as they proclaim your greatness. Father, we thank you for that this morning. We pray that as we open your word, God, would you teach us. And Father, continue to mold us into people who look less like ourselves and more like your Son. And Father, we pray all of this in the name of your Son, the name that is above all other names. Amen. Well, open back up with me, if you will, to Mark 10, 13 through 16, where Joy just read. If you remember, if you were here at the last student-led service, this is actually the passage that we preached through. Now, we didn't just come back to this passage because we didn't have anything else to say or we didn't feel like the Lord was, you know, not guiding us in a different direction. But the last student-led service, as we sat down to pray about what to speak about during the sermon portion of the, the program, the Lord led us to this passage. And then God, in his providence, made it so that as we arrive today, this Sunday morning, June 2nd, to the student-led service, as we have been 
working through Mark, we just so happen to get to this exact same section again. There was nothing in that that was um, intentional. That was purely a happy coincidence that the Lord was working all along. So we are going to dig into this passage today. But what I want to do for you is, um, if you were not at the student-led service the last time, or if you have not been with us over the past couple weeks, as Dan has been working through the first portions of Mark 10, is give you a little bit of a background so you can situate this passage, our passage this morning, within its appropriate context. And so if you remember, Mark 10, it begins with Jesus and his disciples going to the Transjordan region, which is way down south in Israel, and it's to the east of the Jordan River. And so they're passing through, and all of a sudden they encounter a group of Pharisees. And if you remember, these Pharisees come to Jesus ready to challenge him. They had heard about the things that he had been saying and doing And they viewed Jesus as one who was trying to upend everything that they loved and cared about. And so they desired to see him enslaved and even killed. Regardless, they just wanted him to stop preaching what he had been preaching. So they come to him and they challenge him on this point of divorce. And if you hear the past two weeks, you've heard Dan talking about everything that takes place in those passages. But the reason that I want to put this before you today is because the reason they pointed out this issue of divorce to Jesus was very intentional. If you go back to Matthew 14, and if you will, turn with me actually, Matthew 14, 1 through 12. Keep your finger in Mark 10 because we're going to come back to that. But Matthew 14, 1 through 12, and we're going to see the story where John the Baptist was confronted with um, Herod who, if you remember anything about that story, Herod had been trying to take his brother's wife, Herodias, for himself. And so asks John the Baptist about this, and John the Baptist tells him that this is not right. You cannot take her as your wife. You cannot do that, because what the Lord puts together, let not man separate. And at that, if you remember the story, Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned and then beheaded all because of this. And so, as Jesus, back in Mark 10, as Jesus is passing through this Transjordan region, and he encounters this group of Pharisees who begin questioning him about matters of divorce, the reason that they are doing that is because they know this is our opportunity. Look what happened to their previous leader. Look what happened to John the Baptist when he stood up against divorce. He was imprisoned and beheaded. This is our chance to see the same thing happen to Jesus. So let's ask him about divorce. And Jesus enters into this dialogue with these Pharisees, and he reminds them again, sure, Moses allowed a certificate of divorce in certain cases, but you're missing the point of marriage from the very beginning. What God has put together, let not man separate. God has a plan. Let us not seek to thwart it or upend it. And the reason this is important for us as we get into Mark 10, 13 through 16 is because immediately after that moment, the disciples and Jesus, they go back to the house and they're asking Jesus again, all right, so tell us again, will you clarify for us, what about this divorce issue? And it's in the middle of this, of this moment where they're still continuing to ask Jesus about this particular issue that we see our passage this morning begin. Read with me again verse 13, if you will. It says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. 
and the disciples rebuked them. It's in this moment, while they're discussing these matters of divorce, that these people are bringing children to Jesus. It says that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. I want you to get, the, get a picture for what this scene must have looked like. They're in the mid- middle of dealing with a weighty matter, and so for them it's almost as if nothing else matters. They've got to solve this issue of divorce, forget everything else. And what we're going to see throughout the rest of this passage is that Jesus reminds them your priorities are in the wrong places. As we continue, we, we notice that as they bring these children to Jesus, it says they're looking that, that he might touch them. These children have got to have some sort of illness some sort of sickness. They are afflicted with something that is pushing these parents to go reach out to Jesus in faith, not knowing whether he can do anything about it or not, but knowing that they've heard stories and they've got one more shot to try something. Maybe nothing else has worked, so they bring these children to him with the desire that he touch them. In Matthew's account, which takes place in Matthew nineteen thirteen, we read that these parents were also seeking prayer for their children from Jesus. Matthew writes, Then children were being brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Similarly, Luke's account in Luke 18, it even records that infants were among those that were being brought to Jesus. Luke says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. I want you to get a picture for what this must have looked like. You know, in the very beginning, maybe the disciples could kind of rationalize to themselves, okay, we're dealing with something important, so we can't deal with these children right now. But as you read each of these accounts, Mark's, Matthew's, Luke's, and you see all of the different dynamics that are at play here in this circumstance, it begins to become almost a no-brainer. Disciples, what are you doing? You are being brought not just children, but even infants afflicted with all sorts of diseases, being brought by parents who are desperate, probably weeping as they bring them to Jesus. And here these disciples stand. No. And it doesn't just say that they they turned these parents and their children away. It says that they rebuked them. Get a picture of that so you can really uh, understand what it would have looked like in this scene and why it was that Jesus would have reacted in the way that he did. You see these disciples neglecting children in order to resolve a a mere theological abstraction. That's not to say that these matters of of divorce or whatever it, it may be that the disciples were discussing is unimportant, but what it's to say is that if it comes at the cost of neglecting children, or in fact neglecting anyone, then those questions are worthless to even ask in the first place. And that is why we get to verse 14, and we see this strong reaction from Jesus. Read with me, verse 14. It says, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Immediately it says that Jesus became indignant. 
I want to give you a picture of what this must have looked like. This isn't a word that we use in our everyday vocabulary, right? Or anybody? Does anybody use that word often? No, I don't think so. I don't either. So indignant. He becomes indignant. In the Greek, this word, this is the same exact word that was used to describe the state of the Pharisees during the triumphal entry as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on his donkey and people are shouting to him, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna. It says, at this, the Pharisees were indignant. They were furious with what they were seeing, furious with what was taking place as all of Jerusalem was was bowing to this man. This is the same word that is used to describe Jesus' response to these disciples as they rebuke these parents, turning these children away. Jesus was indignant. He was furious. And it says immediately you notice that Jesus directs these disciples' attention to the children. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. First, he gives them this affirmative command, saying, let them come to me. Then he balances it with this negative command, saying, do not hinder them. This was to to convey the absolute importance that Jesus was placing on children's right to come to him. Now, the fact that he desired that they come to him. By putting this affirmative with the negative commands, this is a strong command that Jesus is issuing to these disciples. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. In 1 Corinthians, Paul similarly had to remind the believers in Corinth, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians 13, He writes, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. This is the same thing that Jesus is saying in different words. Disciples, you can have all the right arguments, but if you have not love, in this particular case, love for these children, you, he doesn't say have nothing, he says you are nothing. That is indicative of a heart that has not been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we are going to continue to see. And you see Jesus explaining the reason for these double commands. He says that to such, to children like this, it's to them that belongs the kingdom of God. Then he clarifies verse 15. Read it with me. He says, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So you see these disciples, they're arguing about uh, who knows what at any given moment, turning these children away. Then Jesus turns to them and says that unless you become like one of these, you're not even going to be able to enter the kingdom. Can you imagine what a... What a uh, a shift in thinking that must have been for them, for these disciples. Think about like the blow to the, the heart that that would have been for them. But I think for them, they had learned enough to listen to Jesus when he spoke that maybe they listened to him and applied what it was that he was saying. But my heart for us as we jump from this point into the rest of the message this morning is that we hear that warning from Jesus that we hear his words to not hinder these children who are coming to him, but let them come to him, for it's to such that belongs the kingdom of God. May we hear that 
And then may we apply that to our lives, living differently as we think about students, as we think about children, as we think about their place in the church, as we think about their place in society, regardless of whether you agree with what they're doing or not. I think the question for us as we move forward is, are we doing everything that we can to allow them to come to Jesus, to not hinder them, to demonstrate to them that they really do belong to the kingdom of God? That's our heart as we move forward. And so we ask now, uh, what does it mean then? You know, I imagine these disciples hear this of, you must receive the kingdom like a child if you even want to enter it. They've got to ask themselves, well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? I think there are two stories for us this morning that help us understand what that means and how we can adapt to what it is that Jesus is saying to ensure that we are living our lives in this manner, receiving the kingdom of God like a child. If you will, flip flip with me to Mark 9. 33. I think to receive the kingdom of God like a child means to receive it with humility. None of us like that word, humility, right? Because we're all proud for the most part, myself included. I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, we like things the way that we like them. We like to be served, not to serve. We like things to line up with our preferences, even if they don't necessarily conform to other people's preferences. That's just who we are as people, right? We are selfish people, myself included. And so I want you to take an internal survey for a minute, kind of asking yourself, where do I rank on this scale of humility? What you say probably will say a lot about where you actually rank on that scale of humility too, if we're being honest. I know that does for me. If I'm honest with myself, I know I'm prideful. I beg the Lord every day to strip my pride from me, to create in me a heart of humility, because I know without that, I'm useless to his kingdom. And I have no true understanding of what real faith is anyways. And I think that's why we're all gathered here today anyways, right? To understand what this whole faith thing is to understand how it is that we relate to Jesus. How do we live a life that has been transformed by him? Well, I think what we learn here is that humility is integral. Humility is even maybe at a deeper level, fundamental. So that's what we're going to read about. Mark 9. This is our first story where we see the importance of humility. Beginning in verse 33, Mark writes, And they came to Capernaum, that's Jesus and the disciples, And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Perfect picture of humility, right? (laughs) And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Hear these words. Let them fall on you with all of their weight. 
And now reflect back to Mark 10, to this scene where you see Jesus indignantly rebuking these disciples as they do what to these children? Turn them away and rebuke the parents who are even bringing them to him in the first place. This lesson in Mark 9 was who knows how long before that moment in Mark 10, but it wasn't very long. And it seems as if they had already forgotten. We are quick to forget so many times what it is that the Lord teaches us. A couple observations. What do you notice about these disciples? Where does their heart seem to be? As they're on the way to Capernaum, arguing with themselves, and this is after the transfiguration had taken place. So it could be, you know, that they, for those who were present at the transfiguration, began to believe that they, in some way, were more deserving of this ministry because of what the Lord had allowed them to see. Who knows what it was that was prompting their arguing, but regardless, they were arguing about who was the greatest. They get to the house, Jesus questions them on it, and immediately, what do you notice? They're convicted. They know that what they were doing was not right. They knew that what they were arguing about, they should not have been arguing about. And so Jesus, what does he do? He sits down, draws these 12 to him. And that's, in essence, what I want us to, to feel today. I want to, to imagine that, that Jesus is here sitting down with us, drawing us to himself, and then taking a child, putting him in the, in the midst of us, issuing to us this very same challenge. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. But more than that, if any of you want to be first, you got to be last. Last of all, servant of all. That is what, it, what Jesus deems the greatest in his um, assessment of kingdom value, that the one who is humble and seeking to serve is the greatest. Whereas the one who is prideful, like me many times, not the greatest. My prayer is that the Lord would use this moment for us today to, to, in essence, make us feel as if he is drawing us to himself, presenting us with these students leading us in worship, demonstrating the, the value of a child, the importance of a child, and using that to humble us and, and redirect our priorities. You see, Jesus gives them this, this reminder even from, from Mark 8. So Jesus in this, you know, if anyone would be first language, this is reflective of his challenge to these disciples back when he called them, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross. Or if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and die to himself and follow me. It's the same sort of language. And he's, he's reflecting back on this moment where he reminded them, when I called you in the first place, I called you to deny yourself, not elevate yourself. To deny yourself. And here they are arguing about who is the greatest. And if you remember in that scene, Jesus rebuked Peter when Peter tried to usurp Jesus' own authority, tell him, no, it's not going to be like this. You're not going to the cross. You can't do that. I'm going to prevent you from doing that. Jesus reminded Peter... He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not come before me. You rank behind me. Get back in your place. This is the same sort of thing that Jesus is telling these disciples at this moment. Remember your place. 
get back in line, in essence. These are hard words, but I think it's the same sort of thing that he is saying to us also. Remember your place. Remember that I am the one who is leading you. Allow me to lead you. That's our heart this morning. May we let the Lord lead us. And as we move on, you see that Jesus um, continues to reflect with these disciples on what it means to approach him with a humble heart. First, we see the importance of humility by him telling them, whoever humbles himself like these children is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But then we see in Matthew 18, flip there with me if you will, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see Matthew's version of this event where Matthew writing about what he had seen Jesus do and say adds in this little element that the others left out that I think for us is the key. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 18, which is in in the same story, but just a different picture of it. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It was for Jesus this childlike humility that he sought to elevate for everyone else to use as this example of what it truly meant to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Think about this for a minute. Think about the the humility of a child. You know, I think about this often now that I've got a a one-and-a-half-year-old, well, almost two-year-old. His name is Levi. Um, As I think about him and him being a child and him really not caring about his status in the world. He doesn't care what other people think of him. He doesn't care if he is viewed as important or not. He cares simply about um, whether or not he is having fun and being loved in any given moment. That's it. That's all he cares about. He is dependent. I want you to think about that in terms of, of humility and specifically what it means for us as followers of Christ to be dependent in as much as that is a, a, an aspect of humility. Uh, let me teach you a word real quick. Um, strawbies. Can you say that with me? Strawbies. It's real easy. S-T-R-O-B-B-I-E-S. Strawbies. For us, strawberries. That's what that means. That's what Levi calls them. He calls them strawbies. Levi is, and even as a, as a child, so while most children are dependent in almost every facet of their lives, Levi seems to be the least dependent. He, he wants to do everything on his own, even putting on the, the little cap to the water bottle. He does not want you to help him with that, even if it's at the cost of dumping it all out everywhere and all over his shirt. He wants to do it himself. Um, so as far as a child goes, he doesn't really fit within this, within this example, except for strawberries. So he knows um, when there are strawberries around. It is like his sixth sense somehow. And uh, anytime there are strawberries around, he forgets about his independence. And he knows, I want strawberries, and I've learned enough to know I can't get them by myself. So I'm going to depend on mom and dad to get them for me. So he'll just come up to us, strawberries, 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 end on end until we give him some strawberries. But I've thought about that numerous times as I think about what it means to be dependent. And what a perfect picture that is of our dependence on the Father. We are dependent on him in as much as we recognize we have a need and he can give it to us like that. 
But how dependent are we upon him in all those other moments where we feel like we got this and we can do it ourselves? Maybe I'm fumbling around with this top on a water, spilling it out everywhere. But no, I'm so, I'm so uh, capable and independent that I'm going to do it myself regardless of what that means. I think that's a perfect picture of what it looks like for us trying a little, maybe trying a lot to be dependent. But my prayer for us this morning is that we truly become dependent on our Father and what it is that He did for us. Not just when He has something we need, but in every single moment of our lives, recognizing that He is our very source of life. Being dependent, I think, is a very key aspect to this idea of being humble. And so as we ask ourselves, what does it look like for us to humble ourselves like a child? I think beginning point is remember that you're dependent. Or remember maybe that you're not dependent, but you need to be dependent. You know, that's at least what it is in my case. Let us remember that we are dependent on him, that without him we can do absolutely nothing. And respond in kind by approaching him with that mentality. Second aspect of this idea of humility that I want you to see that really demonstrates why humility is important for us is in Mark 7. This is another story where we see Jesus having taught these disciples something and them so quickly having forgotten, as is the case with us many times. Mark 7, 24 through 30 Mark writes, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is way up to the west on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon had gone. I want you to get a picture for this scene, which again, if you remember, Dan has already walked through this scene with us before, but you get this picture of this woman in desperation seeking for someone to help her daughter who is laying ill in bed, possessed by a demon. And if you remember from the other scenes that we've seen in Mark where people have been possessed by a demon, that demon has sought to destroy that person. So you know things like that must have taken place in the life of this young girl. And so this mother, this desperate mother, comes to Jesus. And testing her, he first says, what? That it is not right to take the children's bread. What does he mean by this? If you remember what Dan spoke about, what he was doing was reminding her that he had first come for the Jews, the people who had covenanted with God, and then later for the Gentiles. He's telling her, Don't you remember, I have come first for the Jews. It's not right for me to give you what is due them at this moment. But then look at her response. What does she say? 
She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs that fall. She says, I know I deserve nothing. I do not approach you presuming to be an heir. I simply approach you as someone in need, and I'm begging you, would you help me with my neediness? Would you heal my daughter? And how does Jesus respond? He says, for this statement, you may go your way. And her daughter was healed instantly. Matthew's version of this event is a little more detailed as to Jesus' response. In Matthew 15, 28, Jesus responds, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. In her you recognize nothing but humility. And a humility specifically that approaches Jesus not out of entitlement, but simply out of a need, recognizing that he can fill it. And just asking him to do what he's done for so many others. Jesus, would you heal my daughter? What about us this morning? When we approach, do we approach out of a sense of entitlement? When we view the children in our midst, do we feel as if they are in some way um, impeding on our thing, impeding on our church? Or do we recognize the way that Jesus has re-situated our priorities, approaching him out of every single moment with a humility that recognizes we are all needy? But God, you are great, and you desire to heal. I think that's our challenge for us this morning. We see humility is important because it is not entitled. It is a dependency upon grace and mercy. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where he said, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. My prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would have that heart that recognizes the gift of God for what it is, namely a gift. And that we approach him in humility, recognizing who we are as needy sinners, but recognizing him for who he is, a holy and righteous God who came and dwelt among us to take our sin on the head, to defeat sin and death, and in doing so to buy forgiveness for us. That is who we are. And that is exactly what we find these disciples not doing as these people bring their children to him. They don't see these children as similarly needy people who need the grace and mercy of Jesus. They see them as a nuisance. In verse 16, back in Mark 10, we see how Jesus wraps up this section says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In other versions, in, in Matthew and Luke, we see that it says he'd pray for them, laid his hands on them, and he, then he went away. Regardless, what, what we see is this intimate picture where after rebuking these disciples who just rebuked these parents, turning these children away, Jesus grabs these children, takes them in his arms, blesses them, and then he leaves. Simultaneously, he is granting these parents' wish, which was that, that, that Jesus might touch their children and pray for them, 
and heal them, even the infants. But we don't just see him granting these parents wish, but we also see him setting an example for these disciples as to what it means to receive the kingdom of God and what it means to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to model lives that have been transformed by his grace and mercy. And so as we close in prayer this morning, would you pray with me, even for yourselves, that the Lord would remind you today and in every moment leaving today of our dependence on him and then in becoming people who are more humble and more reliant upon him rather than people who believe that they're self-sufficient, that we would look at all of those around us and in every single person see an opportunity to display the love of Christ and see specifically here at Central our children, our students, as people to be invested in and built up into disciples who are making disciples rather than um, a nuisance or, or loud or whatever it is that they, that they may be perceived to be. That is my prayer for us and for uh, all of us as we move forward out of today, continuing to apply this scripture that we are reading in Mark to our lives. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Father, we pray that as you continue to conform us to the image of the Son, Father, would you humble us? Father, would you humble me? And Father, would you make me aware of those moments when when I am seeking to live in a self-sufficient way, refusing you? Father, would you help me to be more dependent on you? Father, would you create in me a great awareness of everything that you have done for me? That while I was still, still a sinner, you died for me in my place, nothing that I could have done. Remind me of that, Father. Humble me. Make me dependent on you. Father, I pray that for our congregation as well. Would you humble us and make us dependent on you? And Father, I know that as we are turned into people who are more humble and more dependent on you, Father, there is nothing that you can't do with that sort of church. Father, we believe that and we pray that for Central. Father, I pray that you continue to use Central in the mighty way that you have, Father, to reach this community that people would come to know you and fall in love with you through ministry here, that lives would be transformed, that hearts would be changed, that people would fall in love with you. And Father, I pray that we would see our children and see our students. And Father, would we rejoice at the fact that they are here, that they are loved by you, that they have been created by you, that you know them by name and that you have a plan for their lives. And Father, you have privileged us to be a part of it. I thank you for that. Father, I pray today that as we are even being led by some of them, Father, would you encourage them this morning? Father, would you remind them of the plans that you have for them in your great kingdom work? Father, let no one look down on them because they, were, they are young, but help them to set an example. Father, we pray all of these things in your name. So thankful for this opportunity to be here, to be loved by you and to be known by you. 
And Father, we just respond in worship out of gratitude for all you've done today. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.